This is why marriage is so serious to God, because the essence of marriage is a covenant, and therefore marriage is a window into a divine reality, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he's so serious about it, because marriage is perhaps the best institution, the best image to which we can understand the gospel message of Jesus. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. Our current series, Human Sexuality in the Bible, explores what Scripture has to say on the topic of sex and our bodies. And here we find grace and truth as we consider marriage, singleness, sexual orientation, and more. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. As we start today, I just want to acknowledge up front that we're talking about yet another topic that is very difficult to navigate and to sit through. And it's also very personal for many of us, and that is the topic of divorce. So I want to start this morning by speaking to the men and women who have experienced divorce personally, and the rest of you can listen in. You're probably a little bit nervous for what I'm going to say today. And I recognize that for many of you, divorce was one of the most painful things that you had to walk through. And it would have been something you would have avoided if you could. And so the mere mention of the word carries sorrow and loss. It carries pain and tragedy and disappointment perhaps even anger or regret, maybe all those things. Few things are more painful than divorce because as we are going to discover this morning, divorce is like a death. And for many of you, that's what it felt like. It's often many years in the ramping up of the dysfunction of the marriage and the disintegration of your relationship and then many, many more years in settlement and adjustment. And even me saying these words perhaps conjures up emotions as you have walked through that. And so I just wanna recognize that that I see that, I recognize that, and we're gonna be as sensitive as possible this morning. I often think of the words from the psalmist from Psalm chapter six, verse six, when he says these words. If we can see that slide, please. I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and I drench my couch with tears. And so as I've said already, divorce is like a death and perhaps, perhaps that's your story too. But unlike in the death of a family where oftentimes family members and friends, they, they drop everything to come be with you and they surround you with love and hugs and support and care and they fly over uh, across the country and they sit with you and they mourn with you and they, they help navigate your calendar and they make you meals and they, they help kind of control your life until you've adjusted to the death of a family member. Oftentimes in a divorce, it's the opposite. And you feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel like you're mourning those things together, and on top of that, perhaps you feel like you're wearing a big scarlet D on your chest, and you feel so isolated. You feel so alone. And so here's what I want to do this morning with God's help. I want to recognize that, that whenever we talk about topics like this, we are talking about people who are made in God's image, 
who long to have a life that is filled with flourishing and joy. Everything that God wants us to have, that was your desire. And so I'm going to recognize that these texts that we're going to read today, they're going to be hard to sit through. They're going to be hard to navigate, but I, I want to acknowledge that we have some work to do, but with God's help, here's what I want you to see. That as we wade through this difficult topic, that God's grace is sufficient for all of us. And I want you to see how God sees all of us, even in the midst of our brokenness, our shame, our regret, our fear, and our pain. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been through, there is still hope for all of us in the person of Jesus. When all this is said and done, what God does here is he brings us into situations that ultimately lead to our joy. But here's what's going to happen. We're, we're going to have to walk through that dry valley in order to get to that joy and to see what God has in store for us. So today, let's look with humility. Let's look with courage. And let's look with gospel hope. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So let's look at the situation for a moment. The church in Corinth, it was filled with new believers, and some of these uh, spouses didn't understand their faith. After all, Christianity was relatively new. First Corinthians is one of the, perhaps the youngest letter in the entire New Testament. Even before the four Gospels, First Corinthians was written. So this is very fresh. Shortly after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, this is a very young church. And so we have these new converts, new believers coming to faith, and their spouses aren't believers yet. And they're, perhaps they're a little bit antagonistic. Perhaps they're mocking their spouses for following this new religious cult called Christianity. And so these Christian believers are thinking to themselves, like, maybe God wants me to get out of this marriage. Like, perhaps it's better for me not to be tied to this spiritual dead weight. Maybe God wants me to find a new Christian to be married to. Maybe that's what God wants for my life. And to that assumption or to that question, Paul essentially says this, as far as it depends on you, you should stay. As far as it depends on you, you should 
stay. And so then perhaps we ask the, the obvious question to that, why? why? Why would that be the case? And Paul provides two compelling reasons for this. The first one, and perhaps this is the most significant, is because marriage is a covenant and God cares deeply about covenants. And we're going to look more at that. The, the major thrust of what we're going to look at today is all about covenants. But the second is what we find in verse 14. So look at this with me. Verse 14 says this, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. That's an interesting word. It literally means to be set apart. That's, that's the most literal translation that you can get from this Greek word. Uh, the husband has been set apart through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been set apart through her, or through her believing husband. So here's the image. Paul's giving us a bit of a metaphor here. He's saying that the fact that a Christian is in the house means that the spouse, the unbelieving spouse, and the children have been set apart to hear the gospel and to see it lived out up close. And that's no small thing. That's no small thing. Your very presence in the house allows them to behold the gospel of Jesus. And maybe it goes without saying this, but I, I just want to make sure you hear the nuance here. This is not a prescription for being unequally yoked, right? So if you're not married yet and you're dating or engaged with a, an unbeliever, the message of Scripture is clear. It would encourage you not to be unequally yoked, not to enter into that marriage. But if you're married already and then you become a Christian, Paul says, stay Stay, you can be the, the part of the sanctifying process of them seeing the gospel up close and perhaps they will come to know Jesus themselves. And Gateway, we have brothers and sisters in the Lord in this congregation who are walking that journey, who are, who are married to unbelievers and day after day, week after week, month after month, they are praying, asking the Lord to draw them closer to Jesus. That is no small thing. Then we see verse 15. Take a look at this with me. It says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So when we read this, that he is, the, the, the believer is not bound, it means you are no longer restrained by the marriage. Why would that be the case? Because your spouse has left They've left you, and in that sense, they have broken the covenant. And why is it permissible? Well, we see it right here. God has called us to live in peace. So here's perhaps a, a very obvious question that you might have in your mind. Why would this be a situation in which divorce is permissible? Why is this the exception to the rule? And perhaps another question is, are there any other justifiable reasons for divorce that we find in Scripture? And to answer those questions, we have to go to Matthew chapter 19. So turn there with me. We're going to look at Matthew 19. Perhaps you even noticed in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10, it said this. Can we see that slide? Um, it says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Why, why would Paul say it that way? Not I, but the Lord. He says it in the section because he's quoting very clearly from Matthew chapter 19. He wants you to see that he's leaning on the instructions of Jesus in order to make that point abundantly 
clear. And so we should have that in our mind as we look at 1 Corinthians 7 that he's appealing to Matthew chapter 19. So, so here's what it says in Matthew 19 verse 3. Some Pharisees came to test Jesus. That's important to take note of. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That, my friends, is a trap. That's a trap. The Pharisees are asking one of those questions that no matter how Jesus responds, someone is going to be angry with him. Someone's going to bring out the pitchforks. So just to kind of help you appreciate the uh, emotional charge of this question, it would be a little bit similar to uh, if a pastor in 2020 was asked this question. Do you think that Jesus' command to love your neighbor means you should get the COVID-19 vaccine? I'm just saying it for a friend. You know, I've never personally experienced that myself. Like, you, you know that that is an emotionally charged question. It doesn't matter how you respond, someone's going to be unhappy with that. Someone's going to bring out the pitchforks, right? So that times 100 is what's happening in this story right here. They're trying to trap Jesus. And then we read this in verse 4. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, this is Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So I want you to see the genius of what Jesus does here. His appeal to understanding divorce isn't just about understanding God's righteous no. He wants you to understand even more deeply the profound implications of God's yes with respect to marriage. And so just like we saw last week with Paul when we were in uh, the book of Romans chapter 1, Jesus is appealing to the divine prescriptive mandate from Scripture from Genesis 1 and 2, which is the clearest message of what it means to be in a marriage covenant. A marriage covenant. And so Paul, seeing that Jesus does it this way, we can see that numerous times in Scripture, in his epistles, in his letters, he appeals to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That marriage was designed by God to be a lifelong, exclusive covenanting of a husband and, and wife until death. Until death. So just think about this with me. Marriage is not a human construct. It is made by God. Thanksgiving is a human construct. Um, Microsoft computers, those are human constructs. The building that we find ourselves in, the chairs that you are sitting on, they are all human constructs. And so if we wanted to enter into a debate on whether or not you should have ham or turkey at Thanksgiving, God doesn't care about that. I mean, I do. It's turkey. The answer's turkey. But like, God doesn't care about that, okay? And if you want to have a debate over like, which computer is better, you know, Adam has this crazy idea that Macs are better. He's wrong. PCs are better. But you know, we can get, enter into a debate about that, right? But when it comes to marriage, when it comes to marriage, God says, I made it. I ordained it. And so if you are to enter into this, you have to live under all of its guiding principles. So let me give you an example. I've used this before, but I think it's helpful. Consider uh, whether you, you buy a car. You get a brand new Cadillac, right? And it's yours. You're not leasing it. You're not renting it. You 
bought it. It belongs to you. And because it now belongs to you, you get the idea, you know what, I'm not going to put gasoline in the car, I'm going to put in uh, Hershey's maple syrup. Your friends try to deter you, they try to discourage you, they say that's a bad idea, and you say, it's my car, I'll do with my car whatever I please. And you put it in there, and it breaks down and disintegrates the car. What's the principle? You own it, it belongs to you, but you didn't make it. You didn't make it. And therefore, you have to submit to the creator of the creation in all the ways that it is supposed to work and how it works best. In the same way, that's how marriage is for us. You can be in a marriage. It can be your marriage. But you are, if you are entering into a marriage covenant or a marriage contract, you are appealing to all the guiding principles that God has laid within it. And that's the way that we should think about it. So Jesus, he lays out the foundation for marriage, but, but the Pharisees, they don't care, because as I said with you already, they're trying to trap Jesus. They knew Jesus would respond this way, and they came to pack in with the second question. They already knew he was going to ask it, or going to answer that way, so boom, second question, they say this. Why then, Jesus, did Moses command that a man... Uh, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. So they're appealing to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and then there is, you can go and find this passage later, there's like five different if statements. It is like the largest run-on sentence in scripture, and it's kind of hazy. So there's this great debate that took place after these three dots on the interpretation of something indecent. What constitutes something indecent? That's the Hebrew word erwat debar. So there, there's two different schools of thought in the Jewish community at this time. The first was Rabbi Shammai, and he said that indecent only meant sexual indecency. So marital unfaithfulness, that's what you might just call the conservative interpretation. And then on the other side, you have Rabbi Hillel. And he said indecent literally meant anything. Like if you didn't like her, maybe she had indecent behavior. Maybe she had indecent cooking skills. Maybe she burnt the toast. And so because of that, as goofy as that sounds, as silly and as sad as it is, Rabbi Hillel was noted saying this. This is an English quote of what he said. If she consistently burns the bread, or what to bar? you may divorce her. And it might not come as a surprise to you, but in this patriarchal culture in which women had little to no rights, the majority of Jewish men sided with Rabbi Hillel. They like that because then they're not restrained by the marriage. If things go sideways, if they go the other way, they can write her a certificate of divorce and, and they're out, they're out. So Jesus comes down pretty decidedly on the quote-unquote conservative position. And in fact, he elevates it. He elevates it. Not only is it wrong to divorce someone because you just want out of the marriage, Jesus says, but if you get remarried, it's adultery. So, so let's recap, make sure we're on the same page. So the, the Pharisees, their question is this. Can we see that next slide? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus and Paul both say, no, not for any and every reason. 
not for whatever reason that you want. There's restrictions within the binding marriage contract. And so then that probably leads to a second question, which is this. What are the instances in which it is permissible for Christians to divorce according to Paul and Jesus and according to Scripture? And so we're given two explicit situations, are we not? The first one is uh, Jesus says it's permissible in cases of adultery, marital unfaithfulness. And then Paul expands that list um, in usage of Deuteronomy 24, and he says that desertion by an unbeliever or abandonment is permissible. And that probably leads now to a third question, which I, I put a little bit like this. Why would cases of adultery and desertion or abandonment be the exception to the rule? Why would those be the exceptions? I think that's a really, really important question because as I shared with you already, it does very little good for us to know God's righteous no without first understanding the profound implications of God's yes in all that it is supposed to be. What is the essence of marriage? What makes marriage marriage? What do you think? You know, some people would say that um, marriage is feelings of affection, feelings of love. But let me just tell you, your dog loves you. Like, your dog would die for you. It'll stay by your side until the day that your dog dies. And so to say, I love you, is not a marriage contract. To say, I love you in front of hundreds of people is not a marriage. So it, it cannot simply come down to love. So what is a marriage. What's the essence of it? And we see what Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 5, when he says this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And that word united is a really interesting Greek word, kalau. Kalau. And to kalau something, it literally means to be glued to something. Or better yet, to be grafted or welded into something. And every single time there was a covenant contract in the first century, they would use this Greek term, kalau. So it is in its essence, it is a covenanting of two things. So maybe the, the best picture you can have in your mind of this is when two pieces of clay are melded together and put into an extravagant, beautiful piece of pottery and then thrown into a 1,500-degree kiln. And such a process, as you know, cannot be undone. You can't undo those things. It is done. And what was two has now become one. It has become one. It means to make a public vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment and you're not married until those things happen. So why is God so concerned about marriage and divorce? It's because he is so serious about covenants. He's so serious about covenants. That's why it matters to him. One of the things that really stands out to me in reading scripture is just how faithful God is in the midst of our unfaithfulness. So think about it this way. I put it this way in your note sheet. 
Uh, The covenant principle is this. We serve a ferociously faithful, covenant-keeping God, despite the fact that we rarely reciprocate. (laughs) We rarely reciprocate the covenant promises of God. That's the story of our lives. That's the gospel in a nutshell. I've shared with you one of my favorite stories. I even had uh, Jaden, he came and he joined me up on stage when we were talking about Genesis chapter 15. This was the suzerain vassal covenant. What happened in that story? God appeared to Abraham in the form of a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, and he told Abraham to slit animals in half, lay them down in a row, the blood flowing on the inside, and the process was that both of them were going to walk through the slaughtered animals, signifying that if I break my end of the covenant, then may what has happened to these animals happen to me. But here's what's so interesting about the story, if you remember. God went through the slaughtered animals, But when it came time for Abraham to do the same thing, where was he? He was in a deep, dreadful darkness. He was in the fetal position in the corner, and he never walked through the slaughtered animals. What does that mean? What's the point? Let me tell you. When God walked through, he said, if I break my end of the covenant, then may what has happened to these animals happen to me. But Abraham, if you or your descendants after you, if they break the covenant then may what has happened to these animals happen to me. Either way, it's my blood. Either way, it's my blood. And we see the profound implications of that in the person of Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so this is the deep, beautiful covenanting of the God that we serve is despite our repeated unfaithfulness, he is faithful to us. And so God cares deeply about covenants. And so here's the application for all of us, not just married people, every single person in this room. This is the the discipleship principle. I put it this way, since God is a covenant-keeping God, we are to be a covenant-keeping people. A covenant-keeping people. And one of the ways that we can be both salt and light in the world is how we make and maintain our oaths and the covenant promises that we have made to others. So far as it depends on us. So far as it depends on us. And so I just want you to see just how radical of an idea this is. Do you see how radical it is to maintain an oath in the 21st century in which we don't really talk about covenants anymore? In what other institution do we talk about binding covenants for life? It is a wholly foreign idea tied almost exclusively to marriage. To marriage. And, and so here, here's a way to think about this. This is why marriage is so serious to God because the essence of marriage is a covenant and therefore marriage is a window into a divine reality, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he's so serious about it because marriage is perhaps the best institution, the best image to which we can understand the gospel message of Jesus. 
Let me just show you this. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, when he says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, again, here's Paul going back to uh, Genesis 2 verse 24, just like Jesus. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be kalau, united, cleaving to his wife, the covenant keeping to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so that's really interesting. It's a profound vision for marriage. But then, get this, Paul in verse 32 says something totally radical that blows the roof off of the institution of marriage when he says this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Wait, what? What? When did we start talking about the gospel? I I thought we were talking about marriage. And Jesus, uh, uh, through Paul, Paul is saying to us, we've been talking about the gospel the whole time. Because the best picture in the entire world through the natural revelation of God to understand the covenanting of God to his people despite their repeated unfaithfulness is marriage. Is marriage. And so Paul says that's the essence of marriage. That's why God cares so deeply about it. We even read in Ezekiel chapter 16, it says, when God says this to us, he says, I married you. When you were of age, I covered you with my robe. I gave my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord. I pledged my faithfulness to you and you became mine. That's incredible. That's the image that we have of God. So friends, that is why Jesus is making such a big deal about this. This kind of unity can't simply be walked away from. And in light of all of that information, I think now we have the capacity to understand a little bit more deeply what Jesus is talking about when he gives the provisions for divorce. Jesus is saying to truly understand marriage as this deep unity, this deep oneness, this covenanting between two people, you will discover that divorce is much less like taking off an article of clothes, taking off a sweater, taking off a pair of shoes, and it's much more like ripping a limb from your body. So let's just kind of think about this image for a moment. Um, Imagine if you had a doctor who regardless of the circumstance with your limb, he always went to amputation. Oh, you have a sprained ankle? Let's just, let's just amputate that thing. Varicose veins? Just chop it right off at the knees. Oh, you want to get rid of that tattoo that you got you know, on your ankle when you were a little kid and you now regret? We could remove that or we could amputate. You know, we, we could just cut that right off and you'll never see that tattoo ever again. And so what's going to happen to that doctor? He's probably going to be disbarred, right? He's no longer going to be able to serve as a doctor because that would be malpractice. So get the nuance here. 
There are instances in which a doctor needs to amputate a leg. There are instances, very legitimate ones, in which that needs to occur. But it is always, 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 always the last resort. Never the first or the second or the third. It is always the last resort. When every other option is exhausted and there's nothing else that you can do. But the language of Scripture is actually even more dire than an amputation. It is more like a death, which is why I think we should have such tremendous compassion for people who have walked through one, because they feel that. And on the day that they got married, they had hopes and dreams for their future, and they endeavored that so far as it depends on them, that this would be a lifelong, exclusive covenanting until the day that they died. But then sin happened. It entered into that marriage as it impacts all of us. And it destroyed something beautiful. And so here's why all of that is so important to our understanding of difficult marriage and divorce. Because if we are to say that covenant is the essence of marriage, then we can understand why there are provisions with respect to a couple of different reasons why it would be permissible to get a divorce. Like, for instance adultery, and desertion. Because in cases of adultery, when your spouse chooses to unite themselves sexually with someone else, they have broken the covenant. They have destroyed the covenant. Or when a spouse abandons you or they walk away, they have destroyed the covenant. That's the logic as to why those two are permissible situations in the context of divorce. At this point, I think you probably have some practical questions, and, and I want to facilitate some of those things. So there's three questions that I want to answer to the best of my ability and with God's help before we close today. Let me just share all three of them with you, and then we'll go to the first one. The, the third and final question that we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, if I am divorced, how does God see me how does he see me? The second question is, Justin, I'm in a difficult marriage. What do I do? I'm drowning. What do I do? And the, f the first question that we're going to answer right now and first is, what if there was no adultery and technically no desertion by an unbeliever? But what if my spouse is abusive? To me, to my kids, what do I do then? This is a really important element to this conversation. And so I just want to start by sharing a bit of a story with you. Many of you know my story, but um, when I was growing up, my mom and dad, they, they divorced, and that was my mom's second divorce. And once she entered into a third relationship, into a third marriage, she, she felt that scarlet D. She felt the condescension. And she made a vow to herself that this time she was going to do things better. And that she was going to remain faithful. But unfortunately, the third man that she entered into a relationship with was 
verbally, physically, and sexually abusive to her. And she wanted to stay to prove her fidelity in marriage. And so I recognize that perhaps for some of you here or some of you who are watching online, this is a lived reality. This is, this is not a hypothetical conversation like how many angels can spin on the pin of a needle or, or can God make a burrito so hot he can't eat it. This is real. It's real. And so let me say this as clearly as I can. If that is you, you need to physically get out of that situation. And we would love to help you in this. We would love to walk with you in this. Just reach out. We want to walk with you in this journey. We will drop everything to walk with you. And if you're watching online and, and you know, you, you can't come talk to us afterwards, I, I got a couple of phone numbers uh, up here on the screen. The first is Telecare Crisis and Caring Line. This is a, a Christ-based organization. They have been trained to respond in cases like this. Please just reach out to them. And then the second one is a BC Healthline uh, through the Government of Canada. And we'll keep these up on the screen for some time. So like I said, we would love to walk with you. Please reach out to us. I also want to speak to anyone who may be abusing their spouse. If that's you and you're listening today, I want to say this. In the same way that adultery and abandonment kill the covenant, to repeatedly abuse your spouse is to break the covenant promises that you have made. And the person that you are abusing is made in the image and the likeness of God. She is the crown jewel of God's creation. And you have no right. But I also recognize that oftentimes it's hurt people who hurt people. And you might be thinking to yourself, I didn't even know I was possible of doing that. I'm surprising myself and I don't know what to do. And if that's you, reach out. Don't. Wait, drop everything, ask for help, and we will walk with you in this as well. We would love to walk with you. And so here's the second question that you might be asking. You might be saying, Justin, I'm in a difficult marriage. What do I do? What do I do? You know, one of the things that's been... Um, quite challenging for me as a pastor in my first 10 years of ministry is that more often than not, when a married couple comes to my office or reaches out asking for help, it's when the divorce papers are already filed or when things have become so dire, they, they can't even possibly see any hope that is tied to this. It feels so hopeless and if that is you, please still reach out. We want to walk with you. We want to disciple you in this. But if I'm, my assumption is for the vast majority of you who are married, you are either in a relatively stable, healthy relationship or you, you're working out some kinks because you got a sinful person and a sinful person trying to live into these lofty covenant promises that you have made and you're banging your head with each other. And so if that's you, here's my encouragement to you. Don't wait. I think one of the things that we can really do to help each other in this is to remove the taboo of support and marriage counseling. 
to remove that. Like, just consider this with me. Like, whenever it comes to your car, you get an oil change every four to six months. Something Like, you get the, uh, the alarm light. I'm not an electrician. You know, the little bing that shows up in your car that I don't know anything about. I'm like, okay, I got to bring it to the electrician. Something's going on. The car isn't perfectly right. You know, let's just go there. Or if you want to uh, grow in your extracurricular activities, trying to hone a skill, you'll go get training. Right? Even in your own profession, you'll have PD days, you'll have ongoing training, you'll try to improve yourself. There's this kind of lifelong improvement scale. And yet in our marriage, what do we do? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't fix it. And, and here's what's so crazy about that. Your marriage is more important than your profession. Your marriage is more important than your car. And your marriage is more important than pretty much anything else that we could mention here. Like when, when Julie and I made our promises to each other, we said this, here's our priority sequence. Ultimately, number one is to God. Number two is our marriage because it's a lifelong exclusive covenanting to each other. Number three is our kids. Number four is my profession as a pastor. It is second, not third, not fourth, not fifth. It's second. Everything else falls by the wayside before my marriage. Like I, I would much rather be a, a terrible pastor to you than to be a terrible husband. And I would much rather be struggling and banging my head on what it means to be a parent than being a bad husband. And so my encouragement to you is remove that taboo. So here's, here's one practical implication of this, one, one little piece of advice. I oftentimes, when I'm talking to couples, it's not couples, it's a single. And they'll come to me and they'll say, like, I've, I've tried to encourage uh, counseling, but, but they're unwilling to come with me. Here's, here's my encouragement. If you're the person on the other side, go with them. Go with them. Like to say, you know what, everything is fine when one spouse is saying it's not is the equivalent of if like your entire left side of your body wasn't working, you know, it's just kind of like dragging along and, and people are like, something's going on. You should go to the doctor to see that. You're like, no, I'm fine. 50% of my body's fine. I'm fine. Everything's okay. No, it's not. It's not. 50% of your body isn't working. And so here, here's a way of thinking about this. A tie always goes to the one who needs help. Like if you have one strong arm and one broken arm, you don't say I'm not going to the hospital because I got a strong arm. You go to the hospital because you got a broken arm. The tie always goes to the vulnerable spouse. If they're saying we need help, go with them. Go with them. You are a one flesh entity. You are no longer two. You are one. And 50% of your body is crying out for help. Go do everything in your power to help your marriage. Third and final question. If I am divorced, how does God see me? Justin, how does he see me? I want you to hear that as painful and as stigmatic as divorce can be for so many people, even God has the audacity to call himself a divorced person. Did you know that? We read that in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. It says this, For all the adulteries of that faithless Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. And so I, I hope you hear the nuance in this. Like in one sense, the sanctity of marriage should be preserved and promoted at almost any cost. You should do whatever it takes. You should fight for your marriage. 
Fight for it. Drop everything else. Go after it. Fight for it. Humble yourself. Ask God for help. Look for practical helps. There is hope for you in this. But you, you might need to ask for help as you're banging your head on this. And we would love to walk with you. But also at exactly the same time, we should not be quick to isolate or stigmatize brothers or sisters who have gone through a divorce. And here's why. If, if you want nothing to do with a divorced person, then you are in the unenviable position of wanting nothing to do with God. And I just don't think that's the place where you want to be. God has the audacity to call himself a divorced person. And so maybe, maybe you're sitting here right now and you're realizing that you've made some mistakes. And you're saying, Justin, I, I can't change that. I can't go back. I can't go back. What, what can I do? What can I do? And maybe, maybe all this is just filling you with guilt and regret and despair and it, it's not really hopeful or helpful. Or maybe, just maybe, you're on the other side saying, but Justin, they hurt me. They took something away from me. I can never get that back. They, they just get off scot-free because of everything that they did to me. That's, that's not fair. That's not fair. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. If that's you, I want to share with you what I think to be the most profoundly beautiful and yet deeply ugly and wretched stories in all of Scripture as a helpful understanding of the way that God sees us as unfaithful people. And that comes from the book of Hosea. This is where I want to end today. I want us to see Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. And here's the story. God commands Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman, a prostitute by the name of Gomer. It goes like this. When the Lord began to speak to Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman, have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And I would imagine at this point, he probably was having a case of mistaken identity. He was probably thinking to himself, um, God, doesn't it say in your word not to commit adultery? Like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Can't I just be a friend to the prostitute? Do I really have to marry her? And God says, yes, you have to marry her. If you want to understand what it's like to be like me, to be a God of an unfaithful people, I want you to marry the most dysfunctional prostitute I can find. Because at the end of the day, if you're just friends with her, if you're not married to her, at the end of the day, when you're tired and weary from all of her baggage, all of her troubles, you have the luxury of sending her away. Nope, I want your happiness to be bound with her happiness. I want her troubles to be bound with your troubles. Because in that way... You will know what it's like to be like me, to be a God of an unfaithful people who repeatedly betray you, who are repeatedly unfaithful. And no matter how many times you prove your faithfulness to her, she will betray you again and again and again and again and again. And I want you to know what that's like. And the story goes from bad to worse. Because, true to form, Gomer does exactly that. She, she runs off with other lovers, and Hosea is left all alone. But then there's a, a striking turn or a twist of the story in which a famine hits the land, and Gomer's lover 
sells her into slavery. And who will fend for her now? She has been unfaithful to the only person who has truly ever loved her. And is he really going to pick up the bag? And so on the day of the auction, Hosea goes to the marketplace and he sells tons of his possessions. And he goes to the auction and he buys his wife and the mother of his children back. He buys her back, proving his fidelity and his faithfulness once again. But here's what I want you to see. Hosea is not the hero in Scripture. Hosea's story is merely a subplot to a much grander story of every single one of our lives, every person in this room today. We are Gomer. Not just those of us who say, Justin, I'm filled with regret. I've made mistakes. I've been unfaithful. I've got a a sexual rap sheet a mile long. I, I don't know what to do with all of that. And God says, that's every person in this room. That's the bad news. Every single person in this room is Gomer, myself included. But here's the good news. Jesus bought you back from the auction. So here's the nuance. Here's here's what you have to see in this. Here's what you have to be thinking about. My friend, if you are filled with regret today, the way that God sees you is he says, you cannot outsend the cross. You can't outsend the cross. There is grace for you here, and he is perfectly sufficient and perfectly faithful despite our unfaithfulness. And if you're someone who's saying, but Justin, they, they hurt me, and it's not fair that they're getting away with that, that they've ruined us a season of my life, and I can't get those years back. They walked away. They were unfaithful. They were harmful to me. I, I want you to see this, just that, that Jesus hears you. He sees you. And the promise of the gospel is that he will so radically vanquish the trauma of your life that one day you will look back in that moment and you will see it as a memorial of God's grace and that God will be faithful to you. And so that's why Paul can say what he says in Ephesians chapter 5 in which he says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Jesus has made a vow of absolute faithfulness to you. To you. It was interesting to me, I I didn't plan this, but we just so happened to have the opportunity to celebrate the sacrament of communion this morning. And initially, I'm like, that's kind of a a weird Sunday to celebrate communion. But by the time I finished the message, I thought to myself, "There's, there's really no better day for us to recognize that the essence of marriage is a window into a divine reality that Christ has reconciled himself to us so that we are now seen as the pure and spotless bride to Jesus without blemish or stain or anything, but that we are seen as 
radiant in the eyes of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You've been listening to the latest message in our Human Sexuality series, finding biblical answers to questions about sex and marriage, orientation, singleness, and more. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway. Gateway.